Hello and welcome to the Superior Rag. I'm Andrew Oliver. This is a podcast about 1920s jazz, blues, stomp, and swing. And today we're going to be hearing some very interesting British records from the 20s and 30s with my friend from Bristol, Jonathan Holmes. Just before we get to the music, a reminder to subscribe to the Superior Rag wherever you get your podcasts. We have a full episode, first and third Wednesdays of the month with interviews, live performances, history, old records, all sorts of great stuff relating to 20s and 30s jazz. And every Friday, a side of the week to kickstart your weekend with some hot jazz, one side of a 78 RPM record from my collection or my friend's collections. Last week, we had a great track selected for us by Colin Hancock. And uh, before that, some music from James P. Johnson. So you can go back and check those out if you haven't heard them. Great tunes every Friday here on the Superior Rag side of the week. Speaking of 78 RPM records, we're going to head over to Bristol now in the west of England to the record room of Jonathan Holmes and uh, hear some very interesting music that came out of Britain in the 20s and 30s. Not your sort of everyday 20s and 30s jazz records, but uh, Jonathan is a great expert on this stuff. So uh, let's head on over to the West Country and hear some great British jazz today with Jonathan Holmes. Here from Bristol, we have with us today Jonathan Holmes, and he's uh, a, well, he's a BBC employee, but uh, on the other part of his life, he's an amazing record collector, vintage enthusiast, expert dancer, and uh, also one of the organizers of the Whitley Bay Classic Jazz Party. So he knows a lot of things. Uh, thanks for talking to us, Jonathan. <laughs> That's quite an list. Blimey. I feel sli- I feel slightly weird because you're the journalist, and now I'm interviewing you. So yeah, I know, I know. I know how to it's, feel about it's that? It's also now. quite weird being on the other side of the the mic, I guess. You know, I'm so used <laughs> to sort of giving out direction or asking people's life story, or whatever. But no, it's cool to be interviewed, I guess. Yeah, there we go. Well, uh, Jonathan's going to tell us about. Um, interesting british music of the 20s and 30s which you know when i moved to london seven years ago i obviously uh was aware of some things here and there and some of the british dance bands but uh hanging out with uh, jonathan and some of my other friends here i've really realized how much stuff was going on uh in england in the 20s and 30s and it, you know there's a lot of interesting stuff and you know i think when we think about jazz history uh, you know, you think obviously mainly about New Orleans and Chicago, New York, and then outside of that, you know, the other territory bands in other parts of the states. But uh, you know, there was there was stuff happening everywhere, so it's really interesting to explore. And also, you know, people uh, here have large collections of these records, like you, so it's <laughs> great to have access to that too. Yeah, it's so much. This stuff's kind of like ignored, you know, and it's 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 quite sad in a way, I think, because a lot of there are a lot of Americans playing in the UK in the twenties and thirties before most of them got kicked out by the um by the government um but that's another story altogether but you know that there's this is weird kind of like melting pot of of just loads of people coming here and um playing great music and and just doing really really well for themselves but also a lot of kind of developments in british jazz were kind of led by i guess were sort of led by the americans um but also a lot of british guys were doing their own things so this is weird kind of like mix of 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 all this stuff going off and performers and and music hall and everything kind of converging in London really, which must have been a, a frankly fascinating place to be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, even when you go way back um, and you just sort of think about, I guess, all the kind of touring bands that were coming, and so many Americans came here. Paul Whiteman came here. Abe Lyman came here. Paul Spector came here. Um, you had loads of black artists. Louis Armstrong came here in the early 30s. You know, all these kind of um, big events happened. But the weird thing about British music is that I find, like, a lot of it wasn't recorded. So I think a lot of these people came and just did, like, stage shows and then went home again, mm-hmm. which was which was quite weird. Um, and then you have the odd kind of very, very rare performances by, like, black groups, for example, which is a whole other avenue in itself. Yeah, so it's 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 a sort of, you have these kind of, I guess these sort of like little glimpses of what could have been and the few, the very few things that were committed to record, you know, territory bands didn't really exist in this country. Right, of course, yeah. So, so like... But also the recording culture was different. I mean, yeah, know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't so much sending people around the country to record like random things. Like, you know, that's why we have so much, so much interesting, obscure jazz from the era in America. But uh, obviously yeah. it's a bit more centralized I mean, I, here. I, th- I think, frankly, unless you were playing in London in the 20s, you just didn't make a record. You yeah. know, it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So, so few people recorded, really. Uh, yeah. Which is kind of a shame in a way. 
I mean, yeah, uh, it's it's interesting how the recording history influences our perception of what happened. I mean, not only in jazz, but you know, in in every genre really uh, of, mm. of, of blues and pop and you know all that stuff. Yeah. So I was just going to say quick, quickly, uh, uh, what's quite cool is obviously when I go from Bristol to London on the train, uh, you go through Hayes and Harlington. Uh, and of course, Hayes is where the HMV factory uh, was, which is now being converted into massively expensive apartments. <laughs> As uh, with everything. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but it's really cool to think like the amount of bands that would have kind of gone from Paddington on the train to go make records all day at this place. And then you kind of whiz past it on the train. Yeah. But the building's still there and you can see it. And it says wow. his master's voice in big letters, oh, wow. which is really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't realize it was still there. I have to have a look someday. <clears throat> anyway, so you've selected a, a variety of things from, I guess, 20s and 30s, right, for us today. From yes, your yeah. collection of 78s. I mean, you, you have a quite a decent collection of, of British jazz on 78, right? Yeah, it's coming up to about 2,500 now. Uh, I think I'm in that kind of lucky collection where, um, lucky position, I should say, where kind of because of how young I am, a lot of people just kind of offload this stuff wholesale. Yeah, for sure. So so people are just like, oh, you're young, you know, you take it, off you go. Uh, and I've been very kind of lucky to have acquired the stuff I have, I think. You know, I don't do so much buying on eBay now. There's a load of good stuff out there, um, but the stuff I'm kind of looking for now is is so hard to come by. I think mm-hmm. it's 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 going to be a play the waiting game. You know, a, good co- <laughs> a good collector friend of mine says, "Don't be gutted if if if, if you miss the auction on eBay because it'll come around in ten years again. You've yeah, just right. Gotta, you've just got to wait to get hold of it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's slowly been been growing and it's kind of taken over my flat now. I mean, there's four, no, five shelving units in here. Uh, there's another <laughs> three in my bedroom and a couple of crates. We've got a sympathetic housemate, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, he's very understanding, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but the weird thing is, is that like, everyone I've lived with who has like zero knowledge of this music, you know, you play it for them and they're not musicians, they're not fans or anything and they just enjoy it. And I think that kind of says a lot for, for the music as a whole is that you can pretty much play it to anyone and they go, oh, that's quite nice. Yeah, for sure. And no one says this is, this is terrible. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, my old housemate used to find it really relaxing, which yeah. was great. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when people people who aren't around 78s, you know, like it's also kind of an occasion, like it feels like an occasion to listen to them because it's like, you know, you've got to take one record out and play it, you know, and then take another one out and play it. And I mean, as we know, the sound is really, it's different and unique. And I think people respond to that too, because it just, to me, it sounds more vibrant, you know. Mm. I mean, a couple of, uh, I think it was last year, I was in Germany visiting a friend of mine and we took a little wind-up um, gramophone down to the Rhine, and he pl- took a load of like trash records, and we just played these records, and it was a really sunny day, and everyone that walked past, you know, looked at us, and they thought, "Wow, this is great." And some old guy came over, I think he were pl- we were playing like a beat-up version of "You're the Cream of My Coffee" or something, and he started singing along in German, oh, which is just crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Wow, it's just it bring yeah, it makes people smile, which is yeah, cool. for sure, it's fantastic." <laughs> so, what are we going to start with? Okay, so um, funnily enough, actually, we were talking about all the kind of early pre-ODJB stuff that was going on. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I was really, really fortunate to find a record by um, Ciro's Club uh, bands that were playing in London. Uh, I think Ciro's Club was near where the uh, National Portrait Gallery is now. Mm. Um, and I bought this record for £2. And every time this, um, this band appears on eBay, it goes for insane amounts of money. I think I don't think anyone saw the listing, which was quite cool. Um, and this is the first British recording of Paul Butterfly, and it has this really kind of starchy, almost like operatic type singer, uh, and it's just like a complete ragtime, banjos, banjolelli, all of that kind of stuff thrown in. Really, really nice record. That banjo uh, culture, I guess, was kind of quite happening here. I mean, I've talked to Martin, you know, obviously he knows a lot about it. Martin Wheatley, the banjo player in the Vitality Five. But yeah, I was kind of slightly unaware, like like a lot of this stuff, you know, about how big that scene, I mean, how popular like the banjo scene was. Yeah, it's weird. I think I think a lot of musicians were were playing that in the in the early twenties, and it was just like the the thing that, that they had to play. I think, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, I've I I think I've kind of got onto all that stuff through listening to a lot of what Martin does as well. But also Nick has you know, introduced me to things like the you know the versatile three and the versatile four and. Um, no matter what people say, I, I'm firmly in the camp that that is definitely jazz music, and it's like in its earliest form, and it's just it's just swinging and wild, and it's it's terrific to listen to. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's let's check this out. Poor Butterfly by Cirrus Club Orchestra from what year? Uh, 1917. Wow, amazing. All right. 
All right, that's Poor Butterfly from 1917 in London Cirrus Club Orchestra. Some swinging banjo music from slightly earlier than you would expect for London. Anyway, yeah. it's so, amazing, yeah, absolutely it's amazing. Um, and they sold these on 12-inch Columbia Records, and and just like the ODJB disc, you know, they're pretty hard to find now. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're, I can't imagine that many have survived, but yeah. um, they had quite a long recording career. They were recording 1916 and 1917, I think this group. Mm, okay. Um, Interesting setup. I think some of those, some of the guys in that band also played in another group called Dan and Harvey's Jazz Band. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember one of the. I think Dan Kildare, the band's pianist, he was like a, a raging alcoholic, a uh, bit of a drunk, and um, he. I think he killed himself and his wife and his wife's sister. I think. Oh my in god! Like Twenty. <laughs> I think like he shot them all. It's it's like you know as cliche a story as you'd expect, really. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, so everything, everything is kind of like, you know, the ODJB turn up in 1919 and everyone suddenly goes kind of wild for jazz. And then yeah. there was, there's this kind of like dancing craze all of a sudden erupts in this country. Um, and what, what's, I think what you have to kind of keep in mind is that I think there's a lot of sort of theatres and music halls and, and that tradition. People were still seeing a lot of this kind of stuff in music halls. So it was considered like a sort of extra um, on, the, on the music hall bill. Mm-hmm. So the original Dixieland Jazz Band played for King, was it King George? I can't remember who, which king was in around that time. And, and, you know, they they loved it. They loved the novelty of it. And all of a sudden, everyone's like jazz crazy, and it just suddenly kicks off mm-hmm. big time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then things start getting really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, last year I did this uh, show with Martin Wheatley that I think you saw, um, which was also really educational for me, as in addition to being fun from a performance side, um, about sort of that era when jazz arrived in Britain. And there's some really hilarious, you know, kind of pastiche songs talking about, like with lyrics about the arrival of jazz, like really not great lyrics, but <laughs> sort of demonstrative lyrics, which are funny. Like, okay, jazz is, you know, old man jazz has come to town and now, you know, everything's going crazy. And yeah. I mean, there's lyrics like that in, you know, in America around that time as well. But it's interesting because because it's it's more pinpointable in a way. I mean, like you said, with that visit of the ODJB, certainly had a big a big impact. Although, I mean, once again, fascinating to hear what was happening right before that too. Yeah. Although weirdly, all these kind of um, you know stick around for the new jazz band and stuff is more probably played by like ragtime type groups. Yeah. Right. Who, like weren't actually right. playing jazz in a sort of weird weird clash. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, for sure. and I think I've even got a. Well, I played it for the other day. I've got a record where there's a bassoon in one of them, and it's like oh, yeah. know, early. Well, you know, it's really fascinating the way that people perceived of jazz, like not only the audience, mm. I mean, the, the public, but other musicians in the era, you know, the way they thought about 
what jazz was and like tried to capture some elements of it even and they had no idea they're like oh yeah we'll just put this crazy let's just make it know, up symbol in here <laughs> yeah why not crash around at the symbol that's that's what jazz is you know anyway. why not why right not? so yeah but so uh we'll, we'll move forward to the next one what, what do we have after that um, something a little later i imagine yeah so let's go to uh let's go for the savoy havana band record uh this is one of my favorites by them uh this is broadway london blues and um you've got a sort of mixed group of american and british musicians um playing really well and a bass sax which is also very Mm. cool Mm. and there was this period in 1923 where the savoy groups were using a bass sax and then it just sort of vanished but it's like a really kind of slap-tongued plodding not at all adrian rolini like bass sax. (laughs) right so it's kind of like slightly crusty um (laughs) but also very cool at the same time well, it's interesting you know the, the bass instrument in jazz obviously was so much less fixed at that point i mean you have king oliver recording the bass sax in 23 as well and also very crusty mm. you know uh and then rolini comes along not long after and revolutionizes the shows instrument. people how to do it properly yeah right <laughs> and he came to you know london not long after that too right in the mid-30s yes yeah absolutely yeah um so yeah so this is excellent record by savoy havana band really kind of nice early jazz uh and this is this is broadway london blues London Blues by the Savoy Havana Band from 1923 uh, from the collection of Jonathan Holmes, who's with us talking about interesting British jazz of the 20s and 30s, things you don't often hear. And I mean, that band was certainly uh, one of the most recorded bands of the era, right? Oh, man, totally. And I think they churned out all sorts from the kind of ridiculous, wacky Bar Bar Bartholomew, which is a song about a shepherd, <laughs> a shepherd like wooing London ladies, to like <laughs> early early jazz like that to um kind of semi-operatic type things i mean yeah 
all sorts, absolutely all sorts. And 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 in the early days, particularly the Savoy groups were kind of considered the the best band going. And 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 when radio started out, they were pretty much the only band on radio. So mm. the BBC set up on Savoy Hill, and they ran cables across the road to the Savoy Hotel, and then broadcast the Savoy groups on the radio. And that was that was pretty much how dance music started on on the radio with with just them. So, wow, amazing! You know, they knew their stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And did, was there one person who was primarily responsible for directing that band, or it kind of came came and went? So in the in the nineteen thirties, the main name was Carol Gibbons, um, but in the mid twenties, it's people like Reg Batten. Uh, Raymond Newton, who was a sort of very starchy vocalist and violin player. Um, Carol Gibbons actually started out as a pianist, just like a minor pianist, and then suddenly took this leading role, and, and he actually be, then became the, you know, the Savoy guy. He was like, that was his his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But no, there was all sorts of, of leaders, and it kind of chops and changed a bit through the through the 20s. Deborah Summers yeah. as well was, was I think, involved oh, yeah. too. Okay, cool. Great. Well, that's a nice one. Great to, to have some fiddle in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? Uh, let's go to place of Spike Hughes uh, records. Um, so I love Spike Hughes as a kind of the only guy who was kind of really advocating good jazz in the UK. Mm. Uh, and that while a lot of people were kind of experimenting with this and this was all very new, he was like, let's just play really, really good music. And he played extremely good string bass and he knew what he was doing and he had loads of friends in America and went over to America and made some great records in America. And then he decided, now nah, I've done all I can do with jazz, that's it. And, you know, packed it all in. So, um, <laughs> you know, he, he, and then he became like an opera critic and, and um, I've got this kind of film of him in the 70s wearing a beret and looking exactly as like a retired jazz musician should do, wow. really. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but anyway, um, I picked out a record which I bought from a shop in Birmingham, a place called The Discovery. And um, there was a load of Spike Hughes records in this shop. And um, I asked the guy, and I said, well, why have you got all these records all of a sudden? And he said, oh, well, um, they came from this, this collector who'd like, who was a massive jazz fan, and he had a stroke. And then when he recovered from his stroke, he decided that he didn't like jazz anymore, and he was an opera <laughs> fan instead. And so literally binned off wow. all of his jazz records. How bizarre. So, yeah, so all these Spike Hughes records came to me, and we're talking like ten or eleven in one go, which was a great, a great day. <laughs> wow, what a um, haul. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, so I picked up my favorite one, which is uh, which is Zonky. So it like swings, but it's not in the same way as McKinney's as the McKinney's record, and it's just yeah, it's just terrific. Really, really and people allowed to kind of solo freely and slightly distorted quality, not amazing, uh, but yeah, it's a good record. Great, Spike Hughes and his dance orchestra, Zonky from what year? Uh, this will be early 30s. Okay, cool, yeah.
Zonky from 1930, really stomping performance there from Spike Hughes, you know, not um, light or whatever. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but, but again, when you think about this group, you've got like Max Goldberg, who's an Australian uh, trumpet player. Danny Polo, who came from America, of course. Um, Philip Buchel uh, on alto sax. I don't think he was from this country. And, and, and it's like this weird mix of, of all people from different nationalities coming together just to, to produce really great music uh and spike spike Hughes really knew what he was doing when he's putting these groups together yeah all right so that was pretty stomping what's next uh so let's play uh let's go for some burt Furman. uh so burt Furman is is for most kind of record collectors is 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 in the mid-20s anyways is pretty much some kind of the hot uh british band leader uh he was a violinist by trade uh, he had a brother he actually had three brothers um his brother john was a pianist and then i think he had another brother who was a classical musician as well um and um the bert Furman kind of uh, was pretty much given free reign as on a phone so uh they said right we need to churn out all these dance records uh, we'll just leave it to you off you mm-hmm. go and and mm-hmm. and um you know come back with some with some good music and uh he, he had this sort of regular pool of mix of american and british musicians and and um people like frank garenti who came and stayed in this country for a bit uh he's on this record actually we're going to play next and um arthur lally who should get a mention as a an absolutely superb uh clarinet and, and saxophone player um and uh he just literally went to the studios and would on you know would record eight or nine songs a day sometimes which is wow. pretty hard going yeah for sure uh, especially in that era of you know one take one take yeah. wonders and all that yeah uh, so it's, this record's a bit trash unfortunately it's given to me by a friend of mine um but uh, really really excellent solos by frank garenti on trumpet and arthur lally on saxophone and uh, this is a record called i haven't told her she hasn't told me <laughs> Thank you. 
Great mid-twenties British jazz there. I haven't told her. She hasn't told me by Bert Furman and the Devonshire Restaurant Dance Band. And uh, I don't know, that one has a bit of a Red Nichols vibe to me anyway, some of the trumpet playing. Yeah, it's, it's weird actually. And uh, you said this before, when I brought records over to you, I think Red Nichols was kind of influencing a lot of the, the guys over in this country anyway. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and Parlophone started uh, issuing a lot of the American kind of jazz records in, in I think, 26 and 27. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, these people are kind of starting to, to hear all these records and, and starting to, to kind of experiment with their own things. Uh, and you get people like uh, uh, Norman Payne, who was like absolutely idolized Bix and just churn out these amazing like Bix type solos. Um, I mean, it's interesting, those influences too, because, you know, I mean, like that record we just heard is kind of still a dance band, but but with these great hot solos, mm. you know, so it's like an interesting mix of, of, of those things too. Yeah, and it's weird. And, and it's like having solos on British records is actually quite rare because most of the time the solos are kind of restricted to eight or 16 bars or like really nothing nothing major yeah uh, because it's a lot of it's still kind of so heavily orchestrated and then when you get these solos you think wow these guys are actually pretty good but yeah i mean and the technical quality you know the technical standard of the guys in these dance bands like was really high yeah but it but it's it's like it's almost like gene Golcat, you know kind of being forced to churn out all these commercials yeah, yeah. Sides because the public at the time didn't really have any interest, or they were told, you know, this is not not of interest. Or it's not going to sell. Uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a real shame. And then and yeah. then all the good stuff never did sell. <laughs> so it's always hard to come by, right? Yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> the classic problem. All right. What's next? This is a nice record by the Guilt Edge Four, um, and I like this song. It's, the song's called Brotherly Love, and um, I actually think it's quite a nice title because um, in this recording session, anyway. The, the the band had three brothers in Whoa. on the same recording session. So these were the Storita brothers, uh, who were a family of uh, Italian uh, American immigrants who came to the UK in the 1920s. Mm. And you've got Ray Storita who played uh, tenor and clarinet, Al Storita who played um, alto and clarinet, and Rudy who played drums and xylophone. Um, and they all led different bands uh, in the 20s, but then sometimes they came together. Uh, and on this 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 side, the Giltish Four side, they're all there. Three brothers playing a song called Brotherly Love.
Brotherly Love, The Guilt Edge 4 there, some great hot xylophone, and also a little more of that influence of the New York scene of that era, for sure, you mm. can hear in there, you know, yeah. the Joe Venuti and Ed Lang influence on those guys. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. It's an interesting thing, actually, with the amount of Americans that were coming to the UK, kind of what uh, orchestration stuff they were bringing over with them because mm, mm-hmm. we know for example like uh, um, Fred Elizaldi recorded songs that Paul Wyman also recorded and some of the arrangements are kind of pretty similar you know so there's this kind of like um, all this kind of transatlantic influence of people kind of coming over yeah. and then just sort of doing their own their own little thing yeah for sure I mean, that would also be interesting. Maybe at some point I'll find somebody who's an expert on the Americans in France in the same era because they have <laughs> a totally different set of influences coming together there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right, what do we got next? So I'd like to play you now a record by Henry Hall and BBC Dance Orchestra. And usually when people kind of think of Henry Hall, they think of Teddy Bear's Picnic uh, <laughs> and all this kind of like very kind of cheesy dance band type songs yeah uh henry hall was actually a composer and he composed this this record um i think it's like 1932 early 30s it's not at all well i don't really know what it is really it's not jazz it's kind of some sort of weird um study in foxtrot rhythm is what it's called um and it's just completely off the wall crazy orchestration yeah you name it great uh, and it's a song called wild ride Henry Hall and the BBC Dance Orchestra with Wild Ride. Definitely wild. Um, you can be sure as hell that record didn't sell. Can you imagine kind of like some stodgy British person being like, oh, darling, let's buy a dance buy record. Yeah, and they exactly. like play this and they think, whoa, okay. Yeah, but also <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because like you said, that band was known for like more corny kind of novelty things. And there, I mean, there's a si- that side of that yeah, record too. Yeah, you know, At the same time, absolutely. whilst being really, you know, swinging at a fast tempo. 
Yeah, and um, I mean, yeah, poor, I, I pity the string bass player, particularly in yeah, that record. Yeah, no kidding, yeah, for sure. Outstanding tempo. <laughs> yeah. All righty, so uh, we've got maybe two more records to go. What do you think? All right, so, uh, let's play uh, a Jack Padbury record. Uh, now, oh, yeah. I've played you one of these before. Yeah. These, are, these are really these cool. Are these were released on, them, on the sort of smaller Edison Bell Radio uh, uh, labels, and um, it's kind of like a six-piece group um quite jazzy just again sort of off the wall um not really a well-known group actually and i don't really know much about jack padbury apart from the fact that he just kind of churned out these these very very interesting records uh, and this is a a particularly nice one called praying for rain Jack Padbury's Cosmo Club 6 from 1929 with Praying for Rain. Yeah, some great violin playing in there too. Mm. Um, slightly unusual. But it's yeah. a nice vibe. That's cool. Nice two feel, you know. It is, yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of people kind of, again, they lose track of this. They lose sight of the fact that they just think that everyone was kind of listening to 11-piece dance music or whatever. Right, but, yeah. but actually in probably most smaller halls or places, you just have smaller groups Mm-hmm. coming together and, and, and playing nice songs like this. Although very yeah. few of them made records, unfortunately. Right, yeah. Yeah, once Which again, a, the matter of the industry. Yeah. Now that's a that well, really well recorded, too. I mean, I feel like that these studios here uh, all sound really like big, like big rooms, you know? Yeah. There's very few yeah. jazz records in America the, from like 28, 29, 30 made in rooms where you can hear the room. Yeah. These ones like are really well recorded. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you've, you've got to remember, you know, in the early 30s, Abbey Rose Studios opened. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, that kind of recording quality really took off for, for HMV. Right. But as well, yeah. they were using halls all over London in the mid-20s. And you get this kind of weird period of 
experimentation where some records just sound like ridiculously reverberant mm. uh and some well, that records... one you brought to my house the other day was recorded in the wigmore hall yeah that was crazy yeah yeah and i've got a record that was made in central hall in westminster which is like a thousand wow. seat venue or something <laughs> and and i'm sure the vocalist is using like a megaphone just to yeah. be heard over the van which is which is like crazy yeah 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 <laughs> all right so uh one more record yeah, I thought we'd uh, we'd kind of end uh, with uh, with Ambrose, who was uh, was pretty much kind of considered the you know the granddaddy of of band leaders, and we're going to go back to sort of band music. Although I haven't actually played much band music, but we should probably end with band music because Ambrose was was pretty much the best, and and he recorded so many definitive versions of songs, um, and and was so you know well regarded. Crazy gambler had lots of problems, you know throwing away money uh but he employed the best musicians and had a, an amazing life in the 30s uh playing in monte carlo in the summer and and i mean wow yeah who wouldn't want that lifestyle and he had some really fantastic arrangers and um uh, i think this one is a i think it might be a sid phillips arrangement um but it's just it, it, i think is one of the best arrangements of limehouse blues going mm. Great. And Limehouse Blues, of course, a song about London, which I also didn't realize until I yeah. came here. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the few songs which was written in this country and, and kind yeah. of took off in the, in States, the States as well, yeah. rather than the other exactly. way around, people just like importing American songs. Yeah. So Ambrose with Limehouse Blues. Recording of Limehouse Blues, uh, as we mentioned, a song about London by Ambrose and his orchestra. Very precise, great playing from everyone on that. And um, I guess that'll do it for us. Thanks, Jonathan, for bringing these records. Hey, um, you're very welcome, man. It's always a pleasure to kind of wave the flag, fly the flag for British music. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's also really interesting, it. you know. <laughs> somebody has to do it. Well, that's true. And, and you know, so many things about jazz history and, um, you know, our are written from a similar perspective so it's always mm. nice to check out a, a different current of what was going on over here uh, in the 20s and 30s and Absolutely. um you got a youtube channel it's yes. just your name yeah isn't it? if you just pop my name into youtube yeah. jonathan holmes i should be the top result 
there's I mean, plenty of, uh, of great yeah, well, record uh, well over a thousand there. songs now there yeah great all sorts of interesting things so if you're into this era of, of uh, jazz and of British music definitely check out Jonathan's channel so thanks again man thank you very much Andrew thanks again to Jonathan for that great tour of British records from his collection from the 20s and 30s some very interesting stuff and do check out his YouTube channel there's loads of great music on it and uh, that's it for this week of the Superior Rag stay tuned every first and third Wednesday for a full episode some great interviews and live performances coming up and the side of the week every Friday some hot jazz to start off your weekend subscribe wherever you get your podcast and thanks again for listening see you next time